Kia ora koutou, and welcome to Creative Matakana's Friday finale. Um, we are very privileged to be here again at the wonderful Glasshouse Kitchen. When we were going to run this event in 2020, the theme was to be gender equality and diversity in the arts. It was a pretty hot topic and it remains so and will continue to remain so, of course. But since May 2020, quite a lot has happened in the world and especially in the art world. Uh, the extraordinary global rise of Indigenous art, different ways of working and exhibiting in a post-COVID world and even those pesky new things called NFTs. Uh, earlier this year, we realised we were going to need a bigger boat. So we have expanded the premise and called it a time of change in the arts. So some introductions to this, um, this highly talented, incredibly qualified and very hard-working bunch we have on the couch. Ane Tonga is the curator of Pacific Art at Auckland Art Gallery, Toi o Tamaki. She has previously been lead exhibitions curator at Rotorua Museum Te Whare Taonga e Te Arua and assistant curator of Pacific Art at the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa Tongarewa. She's also an artist who has exhibited both here and abroad. Her work examines the collective experience of gender, place and cultural value and is held in public and private collections including Christchurch Art Gallery and the James Wallace Arts Trust. Anna has taught at Unitec in Elam and has written extensively on many artists. Deborah Rundle is an artist based in Tamaki Makaurau. She identifies as queer, feminist, Pākehā Tangata Tiriti. She mostly uses text-based slippages in language to look at alternative angles in society and politics. She has exhibited at St Paul Gallery, The Douse and Teituhi and is involved in artist collaborations uh, in 2018, Deborah won the Molly Morpeth Canada 3D and Sculpture Award and went to Italy for an artist residency at the British School at Rome. Last year, she won the Yorkshire Sculpture Park and Teituhi UK Residency Award, and she will hopefully travel to Yorkshire in 2022. Lisa Rehana needs no introduction for most of us. Her 2015, is it really that long ago? Video work in pursuit of Venus infected had nearly 50,000 visitors. was a record for a solo show at Auckland Art Gallery. She took it to the Venus Biennale in 2017 and it's been touring the globe ever since. She is a New Zealand Arts Laureate, has been recognised with the Te Tohu Toi Kei Award from Creative New Zealand for making a positive difference to Ngā Toi Māori and was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Art in 2018. Scott Laurie. After studying for his honours degree as a painter and printmaker, Scott gained his Master of Philosophy at the Edinburgh College of Art in his native Scotland. Scotland. It was there he discovered a natural passion for social justice and was a proud activist for LGBT rights and was also much involved uh, during the AIDS crisis. He went on to study law at Edinburgh University before joining a local ad agency as a copywriter in '94. This took him from housing estates in Edinburgh, where he grew up, to Glasgow, London, Sydney, Wellington, Melbourne, and today Auckland, collecting art along the way. Scott has run his own gallery for five years, first the Vivian and now the Scott Laurie Gallery in Grey Lynn, 
with a proudly independent and often maverick approach. Ooh, I like that bit at the end. Finally, our MC, Claire Ullenberg, has been actively involved in the visual arts sector for 20 years as a curator, arts writer, facilitator and consultant. Based in Auckland now, she has worked in a range of roles in contemporary art spaces, managing commercial art galleries and working in not-for-profit arts organisations in Aotearoa, Italy, at the Venice Biennale, America and Australia. Claire has a Masters of Curatorship from the University of Melbourne, where she also worked at the Victorian College of Arts. Claire was the lead curator of Mesh Sculpture Trust in the Waikato and had just returned from a residency in San Francisco and working in New York before joining Brick Bay as sculpture curator here at the beginning of 2019. I will now hand over to Claire. Firstly, let's unpack the title we've chosen tonight, Time for Change in the Arts. Looking back on the outcomes of COVID and the time that has been, what do you see as a positive change in either your own art practice and or the wider art world? Um, I think like many people, it was an opportunity to slow down. Um, on a very personal level, part of that slowing down was to be able to um, I think for me, having heightened awareness of your kind of intuition as you kind of move into workspaces, understand your time and things like that. Um, in a professional capacity, I was really grateful for that time because I just started my role at Toyo Tamaki in this new job. And so it was a chance for me really to get my feet in the ground um, because this was an, or is an inaugural role. There's never been a Pacific curator of Pacific Art and knowing where, um, we know, where to even start for me. And so that year for me allowed me to kind of put my feet in the ground, have a year of planning to build a really, what I, what I want is a strong foundation for Pacific Art at Toyo Tamaki. Um, and that's what that did. And I thought, as much as I am somebody that likes to hit the ground running, It'll come to 2021 and I'm going to wish for that time back. Mm. And that's where we are now in the delivery of this kind of year of planning. So mm. that was one of the things that I'm grateful for. Um, kia ora koutou. Uh, from my perspective, what began with cancellations and postponements, which were disappointments, turned into really interesting conversations and connections. So um, I work on a couple of collectives. One, the gallery that I help run, and we had a lot of cancellations, but in the midst of Zooms, which meant we went from the gallery space where we always meet, connecting virtually into each other's homes. It made a different kind of, well, just a way in which we could get to know each other that was the intimate thing, and lots of people have talked about that. You know, who else is in the space, what, how you decorate, all those things that get allow you to have a different way of knowing. Also in having to do problem solving on quite a big scale, you have to bring forward your best resources. In terms of my own practice, I, I tend, the cancellations didn't help, but I sort of resisted the digital form. I, it didn't really speak to my practice or my interests strongly, and so I chose the private and the contemplative over the, um, well, what sometimes felt a bit like the performance of artists, you know, the visits, the, you know, there were lots of people, organisations running visits to artists in their studios, and I just preferred to, to turn inwards as 
big things unfolded in the world around us. Uh, kia ora koutou, ngā mihi nui, kia koutou. Um, uh, um, in terms of COVID, it's one of the reasons I'm sitting here. I actually am not supposed to be here at present. Um, last year was really interesting because I had six, I, I did six projects in five weeks all around the world um, and got them up and running before, as, as COVID was kind of happening. So we had a show in Germany and a show in... Where were we? Oh my goodness, France and um, um, in Leiden and in Australia. It was fantastic. The last big show I was at was the um, Sydney Biennale, mm. which was a really important moment in time because Brooke Andrew, um, was an, uh, who's an Indigenous uh, um, artist, was the curator and um, there was thousands of people trying to decide whether they should like kiss each other and hug each other or just elbow bump or you know like it was really it was like uh, Lord of the Rings <laughs> there was this black cloud sort of traveling as we were moving through the world and coming back um, back home and so for me um, last year was really interesting because I have always been been working on in pursuit of Venus um, been working on it from 2014, showed it in 2015, and I've been working hard out since that time. Mm -hmm. And people kept saying to me, when are you going to have a break? And I went, April 2020 is when I'm going to have a break. <laughs> and that's what happened. We sort of flew in and had to do self-isolation. And so I had two weeks, and then just as we finished that, the uh, Aotearoa came into lockdown. And it was really beautiful, because I'd always, um, in my head, I'd always had that time. And it was quite wonderful. I live right in the central city just to hear the birds sing and um, it is a lovely place to, to be in Auckland Central because you know, there's lots of green space and, and the whole world I think we were very lucky because in Aotearoa we are sort of in, you know, we were at that tail end of summer and we had a great leader saying, be kind take it easy just take a break you know, let's just reset. And I thought it was a, a very wonderful time. And then the art world was going grinding up. So I had all these projects. And so I was doing a lot of artist talks because I knew that there was all these artworks that we'd set up in these different um, parts in the world. They were then trying to leverage off the fact that they were closing. And so I had to do a lot of public interface um, through Zoom. Um, and the thing that I, um, I appreciated about Zoom was that suddenly the rest of the world was coming to terms with this digital medium of all ages. And it was like the kind of breaking down of this um, technology and the opportunity that there was these um, older people, younger people, students, all sorts of people were sort of like um, talking across the world. So I was um, sitting in my bedroom, probably with really bad lighting. <laughs> I hadn't quite worked out how to have really good lighting. Um, but talking to people everywhere and, um, you know, sometimes it was, I, I, I might be talking at 9 o'clock at night, it was 9am in Germany or whatever, and people were really looking for something positive to hold on to. And it was really nice to see how the arts um, could fulfill a role, and particularly for a lot of students too, because they're like, oh my God, they're paying all these fees, and 
what are we doing and why are we doing this and what are the possibilities that are happening out there. It was really interesting how it set up a new premise and how all these things that we knew that were sitting in, in the world, we had to kind of reckon with them in another way. So I'll pass it on to Scott. Thank you. Many of you know me locally because I used to have the Vivian Gallery, which of course was one of the first casualties in the whole of New Zealand um, to close through COVID. Um, great PR for me. And um, so what was really interesting, we uh, had to close the gallery and just, just on a sheer cost basis. Uh, the running costs in that place were really high. We never ever took any government funding. Uh, we did it all on our own. It was, it was a, well, I did it all on my own. It was self-funded really, but I had a fantastic staff up there. So I went into this really deep hole during COVID. It was awful. Uh, a lot of mental health issues to work through, a lot of ego issues. You know, I'd put my heart and soul into that place as the staff had done. Um, and it was a very, very difficult time uh, for about six months to get out of that. By contrast, the artists were having a party. They loved it. <laughs> Almost universally, every artist, you would check in on the artists every couple of months and they were saying, we're loving this because it's the first time in 15 years, I've had no pressure to do a show. And the work, when I finally got back on my feet and opened the Scotlery Gallery in Grey Lynn, the work, when I did the studio visits, the work was palpably different. Artists need time. They, they need time more than pressure and money, actually. And everyone, every one of them thought it was a luxury to have that time, Could, to go and just develop a little bit more. It was very interesting your point around, you know, they looked inside themselves a little bit more. And that was by contrast what was happening with BLM and the Me Too movement and all of these kind of massive geopolitical, um, you know, seismic shifts, really exciting that were happening all over the world. Actually, what happened to art as a result was quite interesting. You know, protest art has been around for a long time, particularly within Indigenous cultures, and rightly so. But what we started to see evidence of was not that we actually started to see a lot of that introspection. And I think most of that was around how are we connected as opposed to how are we different? Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed um, seeing a, a lot of that work. It was very galvanizing for me to think, you know, one of the other shifts we started to see from a, in a gallery perspective was a move um, away from highly conceptual work to work where you could see the hand of the maker evident in it. Uh, a lot of expressionist work starting to come back in. Uh, uh, you know, painting and all of try pottery. You can't get into a pottery class in Auckland now if you tried for eight months. They're completely booked out. People wanted that tangibility and that human connection. And I think that's been one of the big surprising results for me. You've got these kind of tectonic shifts happening everywhere. But actually, most people are just looking for different ways to connect mm. again. And I'd just like to add to that. I think. Artists are so used to having to survive on nothing that it actually wasn't that scary mm. going into yeah. that space, whereas it was probably scarier for other people. Mm. Um, that, that sense of change, mm. if, if you are that type of an artist, it's, mm. it's, it's not so hard. And being adaptable and yeah. Yeah, ready for change. In fact, well, I was going to say, in fact, um, artists actually got subsidies and the quick round of funding mm. that came through Creative New Zealand, there were, you know, um, short short-term deadlines and then another round and then another round and people could put forward projects without the same in-depth you know sometimes you sort of almost lose the will mm. putting forward a proposal for funding you think mm. it's almost cost me as much in time mm. 
to put the proposal forward, <laughs> as we're likely to forget in terms of a monetary sum. But it wasn't like that in COVID. They, they knew there was urgency. They knew there was need. Mm. And so people were able to do um, quite spontaneously projects often based at home um, or when we went out of lockdown. And um, it was great. I think that, you know, the kind of impacts of that are still manifesting. Mm. I know for us especially, it was a time where we were really questioning, uh, well, I was any, anyway in my curatorial practice, um, our values and our role in supporting artists and how to do that without an, beyond an exhibition output. So there was very much this kind of, you know, checking in on artists. But you also saw how galleries responded to this kind of support. You know, you saw these kind of social media takeovers um, and things like that. And it was a really fascinating time to see how um, parts of the way we operate are still very quid pro quo of, you know, um, keeping or maintaining this busyness for artists. Um, and for some of them, they thrived. Others, you know, kind of went off the grid in the same way and needed that time to really um, grapple with things. And I think that allowed us to think about how can we also best support those artists who aren't making at this time. They're not baking bread. Um, they're just trying to really work through these cancellations and work with more flexibility than they probably ever have, and for us as well. And in a way, I think that return to the local was really important. In some ways, it almost felt that time was almost correcting. You know, it's universe correcting things of allowing us to work with our local artists to start to program in that way, possibly because there's no other option, you know, but also because we should already be doing that. And so it's just a little bit of a shove in the right direction. And, and to add to that, I think um, what was happening at the Auckland Art Gallery, because these... Um, Two international shows got stopped at the borders. Yeah. Toy 2, Toy Order ended up being as big as it is now mm -hmm. because of COVID. Mm. And so, in a sense, it is the contemporary bookend to Te Māori mm. exhibition, which had happened. We, we were always advocating to have a large Māori, contemporary Māori art show at Auckland Art Gallery. And COVID... Made it, made it happen. Made it happen. Oh, well, it pushed I mean, it further sad along. That it took that long for it to happen in 132 years. <laughs> so, another topic we're interested in today is identity and place and the rise of exhibiting Indigenous art. With the largest exhibition ever presented in the Auckland Art Gallery's 132 year history, Toy to Toy Ora. The question is should it even close or be a permanent exhibition? The gallery has seriously never looked so good and Nigel Burrell has done an amazing job of curating a seminal exhibition of contemporary Māori art, a cohesive and moving survey of the past, present and future for Māori art. I, th I think, in, uh, to jump in, I mean, in, in, in any institution now in the arts, they are multi-layered mm -hmm. and they have so many plates to spin. Uh, it's, it's not, and there are so many different interests, including corporate interests, involved. And then you have what's happening in New Zealand, which is this really fascinating sort of schism where you go, well, how do you take a show essentially from a Maori perspective of the Maori universe and place it in a context like that? Mm. The biggest, most important thing for me going on one of Nigel's tours was I very quickly realised this wasn't my universe. I was looking into this universe and I loved that because I thought, this isn't mine. I can't put on a Eurocentric hat 
and read this show the way I've been taught to read art. And it was brilliant stepping into that space, but it just made me all the more convinced there needs to be a national gallery of mm. contemporary Maori art in this country, mm. and it needs to happen soon. You know, it needs to happen in the next five years. Mm. Um, there's no excuse for it now, mm. for it not happening. Just to be clear, um, the Huntervasa Art Gallery opens at the end of this year, mm-hmm. and Wairau Māori Art Gallery is um, it is is at the centre of the building. And Friedrich uh, Friedrichin um, Hundewasser was only gave his permission for the gallery to open if there was a Maori art gallery at the centre of it. Mm. And so I've been on the Hundewasser board. We've raised the money twice now to open up that gallery, and it's going to be beautiful. Mm. It's very beautiful. I've done some walks through it, and it's incredible. And um, uh, so Nigel's coming in to uh, curate the first show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but also Nigel's going on to return to his practice as an artist. Mm. So um, there he had, I mean, he's been working in the glam sector. <laughs> I was like, what's glam? Sounds like good. Why is the glam sector? Anyway, he's been in the glam sector maybe for the past 10 years or so. It's always tricky. It's tricky when you're working under... Um, on the councils, because mm-hmm. they, they're constantly shifting and changing. Mm-hmm. You're at the vagaries of um, the government mm-hmm. and government philosophies. Mm-hmm. But I, really, I find it really annoying, because like health, education, arts, all those things, they're always going to live there. You just have to jump different types of mm-hmm. hoops, I suppose. That's almost what you're talking about too, Deborah. But um, uh, it's complicated. It's a complicated story mm-hmm. for the Auckland Art Gallery. And I've, I've been on the... I've been on the, uh, two boards for Auckland Art Gallery for nearly, I don't know, 15, 20 years. These are the things I do, not as an artist, these are the things I do to support the arts community. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we need people who are advocating from the inside. I know because I've been an educator, you have to have people inside, you can have people outside. You know, it's a whole ecosystem mm-hmm. um, and it has to be um, strong enough to survive all sorts of... Um, moments in time and um, the world's changing a lot right now but we have a very beautiful I, I love the Auckland Art Gallery mm-hmm. I love where it is I love where it's sited mm-hmm. it's on that's actually two par sites underneath um, the space where Auckland Art Gallery is so it's got a great history um, so I think it's going to live beyond us and all our hopes and the machinations of the vagaries you know always I mean I've I, I, you know, I, I call myself native two times. It's about Auckland. You know, it's always going to be here. There's always going to be an energy that comes from here, and it's beyond us. Mm. And so we just have to kind of feed it the best way that we can. And everyone puts a little bit of energy in sometimes, and, and sometimes you have to step back because f- for all sorts of different reasons. Mm. So gender equality, that was going to be the main topic of this panel pre-COVID. Gender bias is still a big issue, of course, and the role of women in the arts with such an imbalance of women represented in galleries. Firstly, I must commend the galleries who are committed to giving women artists exposure, such as Scott here, who shows a 50-50 split, and Anna Miles, who shows more women than men. And there are others, but just not that many. A major change in the arts is a broader concern for diversity and gender inclusivity, such as... Yuki Kihara, who is New Zealand's artist for the 59th Venice Biennale. She is the first artist of of Pacific descent to represent New Zealand at the Biennale, and she is also Fafafine, which means in Samoan, in the manner of a woman, 
and broadly understood as the LGBTIQ in the Western context. Um, and I think this is a key moment. You know, there are lots of firsts in there when you are the first Fafa, being a first Pacific person, um, first inaugural curator, that there is this kind of big build-up that comes with it. And what it does sometimes is that it obliterates all everything that came before it. Mm. So you do want to be the first, but certainly not the last. So that's my roundabout way to then coming to FAFSWAG. It has been phenomenal to see the work that they have done as well, the, work, the way in which artists are almost coming full circle into a collaborative way of working, which is fascinating to me because I'm a bit of a control freak, so I don't know how that works. Even though I've written, had the honour of writing about Pacific Sisters, it's um, quite aspirational to see, you know, that form of solidarity for um, collectives like FASWAG and also Mata'aho, who I'm going to put here, who are in the Walters Prize, yeah. um, where artists bind together, and I think Mataho's a really good example of this, to create a single work, or as they say, under a single authorship that they could not make alone. Mm. And for them, seeing four lens-based Māori artists, when they come together, put that down to create these kind of fibre works, work with tui tui methodologies, is inspiring, mm. in a similar way that FAFSWAG um, are there in support each other as a collective, but also in their individual practices. Ideas around collectivity are mm. central to some of the ways that I like to work too. Mm. And it's like the singular plural when you when you work in a group with others, and this you have to surrender some ego. You have to mm -hmm. work for the group and the group interests, and you find a different way of being in conversation with issues when you work collectively. And I, I think you know in that sort of. That also comes back to the COVID thing and the sort of the, the crisis of capitalism that happens with, which can never be the answer to the big issues. Mm -hmm. And you know you have to re return to those that you know and um, home in a way. So yeah, yeah. I think that that can be a really important way of loca locating conversations. But one, I suppose one of the things I'm also really interested in is, is ideas of representation, mm -hmm. and um, that, and completely excited about those that we can celebrate but there are still so many things that we can't really celebrate and it, and even the fact that you celebrate 50 50 is kind of exactly. you know it's, it's like kind we're, of we're still down yeah like yeah that, and I, I think one of the things I've sort of been toying with and I haven't really completely landed on a, a strong view but I'm wondering whether quotas actually are one of the things that can work quite well in institutions because Consciousness raising has, has been um, effective in people understanding issues, but it hasn't been that effective necessarily in structural change, mm. that the structural change lags so far behind people's understandings. And um, that goes to things like feminism, post-colonialism. You know, the conversations are, are not like, wow, I never thought of that. People have thought about mm. that. But it's about how you change the structures that... that support and, and uplift practice mm. and include. And, um, and I think that, particularly in public institutions, we've, we've all, as audience as well, got a real role to play in saying, where am I? Mm. You know, like whether it be for me as a woman or from the LGBT, where am I? So, Deborah, you're part of Room Gallery. I it's am. a very good example of a collaborative yeah. energy, which has gone for over 20 years. Yes. Yeah. I haven't been part of it for 20 years. That's one of the 
the things that keeps it sort of lively and dynamic is that um, the collective change changes and mm. often the, the host building we have, that has moved around um, and it's currently a collective of 10 of us. We're not curators, we don't curate a programme, we, well, yeah, we host a programme mm. by application so we like to see it as quite a democratic way of working. People put proposals in and, mm. um, and then we host and facilitate those shows and mm. support support artists, mostly emerging artists, but not only. Outside yeah. the commercial. De- well, definitely outside the commercial. Turnaround, yeah. like you model. And we don't have sp- a sponsorship model. We, 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 we get our funding from um, Creative New Zealand and um, they are responsive to our applications. We, they don't dictate in any way, so it's a, a funding model that allows us to keep with, keep with what we think is Im- important. And then we fundraise, so... Oh, you're yeah. curating. Yeah. You just <laughs> outline all the kinds of things that are part of the job. Yeah. Re- representation is an interesting one, though, because you can... You know, it was quite easy for me as a small, new gallery to instigate a policy where you kind of go, you know, let's get the balance right, because there's enough good art around that, that people are making. So you, you can make quite informed choices going, well, you know, there's too many blocks, so let's balance that up. But that's actually really easy. But I do question ideas of representation, and I say this from an equal queer perspective, where everyone's equal and everyone's an artist. You know, it goes all the way back to Joseph Boyce, Jedermenschein Künstler, you know, everyone is an artist, everyone is entitled to be an artist, to feel like they're an artist. That's fine. But you hand out guitars to every single person in this room and say, you're all guitar players. Some people are going to sound like shit. And, I, and, I, and your sensibilities won't respond to it. Now, now, I have big issues with this around representation, which is saying, well, everyone is entitled to be a guitar player. Yes, they are. They're entitled to hold out a thing and knock out a tune, but not everyone is going to want to listen. And that, that, there's something in there. That I, I, I'm always, there's nuance in that. That, yes, you can, it doesn't mean everything's good. It doesn't mean everything's going to touch you because it's means, uh, it means something to an individual artist. It does not necessarily mean that you're going to connect it in a meaningful way. And we have to be careful of that because when we start pushing these things too far and we're going, well, I have no meaningful connection with this as a human being, you know, is everything equal? I mean, in in a sense, you could do it, but then the whole, you know, you need some kind of order out of the chaos. Everything would just collapse, you know? Everything that your child does at school with their sensibilities at that time should be kept forever and displayed in galleries. You know, where does it end? Where does it stop? I think it shifts too from like a discussion of equality to equity. Say if, you know, if this person had the means to a guitar teacher, we just keep going on that analogy, would they be as good as this person? Yes. Or are they the one in a hundred that's going to pick it up and just be amazing? Yeah, 100% with you. Mm. And and those are structural issues which you mentioned earlier on. They're, They're societal issues. I mean, and it's not just, you know, don't make the mistake, it's in the arts. You know, I was in corporate life for 20 years and the disparity in boardrooms is shocking, mm. e- even today. And I mean, you meet an awful lot of really talented people who deserve to be there and they're not. So it's a structural issue. Mm. For instance, there's a lot of women in the arts. It doesn't necessarily mean that they get remunerated. You know, one thing that I've loved um, watching through my lifetime is uh, when I was at art school, and I was working with a lot of Māori activists who were um, pushing for airtime of Māori language on, mm. on television. 
and it started with four minutes of tikarari, which uh, was from 5.55 to 6pm. It was four minutes and there was a minute of ads before the news started. <laughs> And um, it was a real problem because a lot of people who were working in, you know, had re really menial kind of jobs, never even got to see the news. Mm. To the point now when you listen to national radio, there's a lot of te reo, that, that, that sort of push mm. does make a change. Like for the government, if you can get something in there, you make a space and then that's that, you know, kind of pushing that out. And it's something that I do love about New Zealand. I've got a couple of friends who've just come over from Australia and they're really... Um, shocked even in the last 12 months the shift of the quality of the teleo that they're hearing on television in the broadcast mm. sector and that comes from the government enshrining it in policy mm. so you can see if you do enshrine if you push 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 mm. you can make a difference like you do change society mm. and that has that is from when I was in my second year at art school, there was a lot of, we were, you know, sleeping in the Senate, pushing for the marae, you know, all these different things that were happening at that point in time then. And where we are at now is really, it's quite a different, it's a very different field. New Zealand, Aotearoa as a culture is a really different place. Mm. And it's not perfect, I'm not, I'm not mm. saying it's perfect, but we... Uh, talking to each other, we are, you know, there's, there is a space made the for these things. Biculturalism strong. I mean, in, you know, compared to Australia, major or policies, major policies in the 1980s, mm. a closer economic um, ties mm. with Australia. All these things mm. uh, are coming to pass at this point in time. Now, it's so interesting to be in a bubble. Mm. Yeah, and I'll also just add to that about RNZ. I can't speak Te Reo Māori, but I really enjoy the way they've embedded it mm. into their broadcasting mm. now, and it's so seamless, and mm. I actually really enjoy, it's a terrific privilege to listen to that mm. every day. And they're doing, I think it's just these little nuances, mm. Mm. but they're very, very powerful, and you do pick up. You start using yeah, the words. Yeah, you do. It's, it's, it's really the exposure again. Yeah, like, I really enjoy yeah. it. Um, a call that I had, which was really interesting from a dealer gallerist, asked really about how institutions are these kind of impenetrable places. And I do understand that, you know, how do Pacific artists, how do Māori artists get collected? And I, and I said, I understand you, I am hearing you, I am working on it. Can I ask, how many Pacific women are on your rosters? Mm. How many do you represent? Dead silence. And what we came to was an understanding that, you know, it is a wider ecology. We all play our role in this. And so, you know, when if in between these shows, these inst um, inter institutional shows, we need artist-run spaces like RM, we need dealer gallerists representing uh, Pacific women, Māori women, and not just for the one-off exhibition outputs, I mean, on the boards. Mm. So I wanted to end with that and put that challenge out there and hope it gets picked up. So another very interesting innovation post-COVID is some of the new ways of working, new fo more focus on digital and uh, new media. And of course, not being able to go into exhibitions, people were exhibiting online. But one of the big directions and hottest topics is NFTs, non-fungible tokens. So Lisa and Scott, it would be so interesting to get your thoughts on this. Lisa, because you've been working in digital, digital medium for a very long time, and uh, Scott, because you're quite an expert on this new development. 
you know, it's not any different from what's happening anyway. Yeah. If you sell an artwork, it actually comes from print media from like early 1900s. Mm -hmm. You put a you put a you put a value around something. You it's a patent. Mm. America was really yeah. good at selling patents. Mm. It's just they're embedding it in the blockchain mm. and Ethereum and um, oh, what's the money? Cryptocurrency. The problem with it at present time is it's being embedded on top of something else. Um, and what is a concern that all artists, all of us need to be aware of, is the um, footprint and the and the amount of energy resources mm. it takes to run these things through the world. So mm. it's, a, it's a really interesting idea because potentially it gives artists um, a, a new kind of um, what I call... Uh, well, being able to run your own business, uh, but but also you have to look at what's sitting, you know, the code that sits underneath it. Who is running that code, and are you really, as it as it have the um, the things that uh, you you aspire to. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think about the fashion industry and looking at the notion of using cotton, how much how much energy it takes to make a pair of jeans, for instance. These are the same similar questions that artists need to be mm. asking themselves. Mm. All of us in the arts industry, how much, what is the footprint mm. that we are creating in the world? For, um, for, 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 for those who don't know what a non-fungible token is, um, just, just a, a one minute explanation. Um, so if something is uh, fungible, it means it's, um, it has the same exchange value. So if I have a dollar and I give it to you and you give me a dollar back, that's fungible. Something non-fungible is something like a small painting, for example. It's completely unique and it can't be replicated. Um, the other thing you need to know about NFTs is they're evil tools of capitalism. Um, they are just another form of exchange and um, you, know, you have to swallow that bit. They are not revolutionary. Um, in terms of what they will do for the arts, necessarily. It'll certainly probably be the death of some galleries because galleries have no part to play in an NFT exchange for an artwork. It is the artist selling directly to a purchaser for cryptocurrency. And um, if you look, uh, just to see me talking for half an hour, there is on the Scott Laurie Gallery Facebook and Instagram account, you'll see the video. I made a little 10-minute explainer video. It's definitely worth having a look at. Um, there were two or three conclusions I had from it. The first one, Lisa, to your point, is it's technology-based and technology changes, and there's already new authentication systems which are much lower in power, so you don't have to take the power that runs a small country like New Zealand. Um, they now have different authentication modes which are much, much greener, if you like. Um, some artists have done amazingly well. If you look at Jess Johnson, for example, she's moved into that space. She's done an addition of five. They all sold for, you know, an Ethereum each, whatever that's worth now, two and a half grand, directly to the artist. And um, it's fiddly, it's complicated, but for younger artists, I mean, the quality of the art is rubbish. I mean, 99% of it is you make a JPEG and, uh, you know, you can sell it. Um, but the audience demographic is fascinating because it's really young people. It's 18 to 25 year olds. And, and don't, don't pretend that that audience, you know, I, I mean, all think that art is bought, bought by rich people. It is, generally speaking, because poor people can't afford to buy art. And, um, but what NFTs do is, is they sort of flip it. So Jess Johnson made an addition recently of an animated GIF, 10 seconds long. She sold them for $15 US each. You have an original work of art. And these kids are collecting these things in their little crypto wallets. 
Uh, and somebody pointed out to me the other day and they said, and I said, oh, I don't know if it's going to be around. It'll probably crash before it gets any better. And they said, well, and I said, there are huge storage issues um, attached to the security. You own this thing. If you drop your hard drive or you lose your password, you've lost it. This thing needs to be stored somewhere. It's a digital file. At some point it might run out. But her response was really interesting. And she said, yeah, but we're never going to own a property to display artworks, are we? So now we can have an art collection on a hard drive and we can back it up into the cloud. And I thought, that's really, really interesting to me. That, I mean, it will never, the genie will never be put back in the bottle. These ecosystems will coexist side by side. There's two different ways to experience art. And it's very interesting that as a generation, we say, you know, we were brought up on line and form and shape and scale and being in the presence of an artwork. Whereas for a generation under 25, they've been looking at iPads all their life. They're not interested in going to galleries. The babies know how to swipe like this. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was really interesting in Toy Toyora and walking around. And what I loved about it was the number of um, Maori and Pacifica kids running around to play school kids. 95% of them still look bored. You know, they weren't interested. They were all kind of dropping chewing gum down each other's backs and everything and running around and making a hell of a racket. So we, we have to take on board that there's a lot of people not interested in art. So any new vehicles that you can open up to people to engage with it, whether they, you know, whether they want to browse it on a phone or an iPad or a telly, brilliant, because they're engaging with art. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's, that's the means to it all, I, I think. Yeah. So I suppose it's also like music. You know, people listen to LPs, people listen to CDs. They say, oh, CD's going to be the death of this. Like, it's not. People, CDs? CDs, <laughs> DVDs. <laughs> oh, look, I, I started making films when I was in super age, and it was high age, digital age, 16mm, VHS, SVHS. You know, it's like, there's, it's, it's the medium is not the message, it's the work that you make. Mm. It doesn't matter, because people just, they want it. Mm. And so they're going to interact with it however they find it. Mm. And so that's, that's the point where mm. you make a handshake and you share mm. ideas with people. So however they, and I do think it is the space of the mm. youth mm. is where NFTs are really um, mm. are flying high, definitely. I think too, kind of in thinking about sorry, I'm going to go from NFTs to just technology in general, um, is that one of the responses that you saw was everything goes digital in kind of, you know, 2020 and even now. But what, I think this assumption that, you know, younger people are in technology, yes, they are, but what you actually saw was a huge digital divide. And you saw that in how people were trying to still, you know, for their kids to be educated at home, there was an assumption that they have iPads, that they have computers or even internet to do that. So I think in terms of when there are these huge pendulum swings to NFTs, there are also things on this end um, that get missed, I think. Mm. 